If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Ephesians chapter 2. <laughs> Ephesians chapter 2. I told you a few weeks ago, two weeks ago, three weeks ago today, I guess three Sundays ago, that I didn't know where we were headed with regard to Ephesians. I just really felt led to that first chapter. <clears throat> and I preached a message three weeks ago entitled, Who Am I? And um, more importantly than us trying to answer that question ourselves, we, re- we really need to know as Christians, who does God say that I am? Because sometimes our estimation of ourselves is wrong, both in a good sense and a bad sense. Um, but who does God say that I am? Because of what Christ has done for me, um, and because of my faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and what He has done for me, who does God say that I am? Um, I think a lot of believers face an identity crisis because they don't understand who they are in Christ. I've, I've asked that question a lot of times in counseling situations, and people just kind of look at me like I don't really know how to answer that. Well, we, know, we need to know how to answer that, because one of the things the enemy will bring up, we sang some songs this morning, um, he, he'll bring up your shame, he'll bring up your guilt, he'll bring up those failures, those shortcomings, those weaknesses, and, um, and, 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 and just drive us down into a place of despair. So we really need to know who we are based on who God says that we are. And so I gave you a list from that first chapter. Um, and you can go back through that list. I'm not going to preach it again. Um, but you look at that chapter and it says that all those who have placed their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ are chosen by God. That we have been accepted in the Lord Jesus Christ. Not rejected, accepted that we are forgiven of all of our sins, that we know things about God that the world can't know and won't know until they receive Christ. We have a revelation of God and of His will. And we are in union with His kingdom, which is an eternal kingdom which never comes to an end. Uh, We have an inheritance there um, that will never fade away. Peter said it won't rust, it won't canker, you can't take it. It's reserved in heaven for us forever. And we're sealed by the Holy Spirit, which is the down payment of our future inheritance of heaven. That's who we are. That's who we are in the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, wrapping our minds around that, by the way, is a lot more difficult than just reading the list. It's hard for us to get that concept in our minds. And I'll tell you, I'm still learning it myself. But I've learned much more of it through the years than I knew from the beginning. I didn't understand everything um, that, that Ephesians chapter 1 taught me. I'm still trying to wrap my mind and my heart around it, but it's a process where we learn who we are in Christ. The Apostle Paul even said in 1 Corinthians chapter 13 that now we see through a glass darkly, um, but then we'll see face, but then we'll know even as we're known, we'll see face to face. So all our life is a process of learning who we are in the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, and with that thought in mind, and, and I, I used Desiree's words when I asked her if she understood what Christ had done and who she was in Christ, and she said somewhat. And I like that answer, honestly, um, because it is a somewhat for us. We don't always understand what we ought to understand and know what we ought to know. Um, that's what sanctification is all about, growing in understanding. And so Paul, in that, in that last part of that first chapter, he, he literally prayed a prayer um, for the church at Ephesus, and, and that, 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 that request that he made helps us answer our, our somewhat questions. There's the outline from last week. He, he thanked them for their faith, and he thanked them for their love, and then he prayed one specific request. He said, I want you to, I want you to grow 
in the wisdom and revelation of Christ. I want you to know Jesus better. I want you to know Jesus more because the better you know Jesus and the more you know Jesus, the more you'll understand what the hope of his calling is. And that's assurance. He called you. There's assurance there of your salvation. The riches of his glorious inheritance. That's what he's promised us in the future and the exceeding greatness of his power. That's what we have right now at work in our lives. And he said the more you know Jesus... The more wisdom and revelation you have of Christ, the more you'll know those things and have assurance in those things and be grounded in those things and settled in those things and confident in those things to grow in wisdom and revelation of Christ, to have our heart flooded um, with the light of who He is and what He's done. So, I had no intention of going any further than that. but. Uh, and I don't know that we'll go any further than what we're going to go today. I'm not telling you we're doing a series in Ephesians. But I am telling you, I've got to carry this thought at least one step further. And I may, I may move on depending if the Lord gives me liberty. I'm sure he gave me liberty to go here this morning. It occurred to me this week that I've spent a great deal of my ministry um, on the practical side of things. And what I mean by that is I, I spend a great deal of my time in ministry talking to us about what we ought to be doing and what we ought not to be doing. That's the practical side of Christianity. That's how we flesh out our lives in Christ. Now, there's nothing wrong with that teaching or preaching. Um, I'm not apologizing for that. But it occurred to me this week that, you know, I know I have spent a bunch of time in Ephesians chapter 4, Ephesians chapter 5, and Ephesians chapter 6. But I cannot recall a time that I've ever preached messages dedicated to the first three chapters of Ephesians. Now, I've quoted the passage of Scripture that we're going to read this morning many, many times. But as far as dedicating a sermon to that, I don't know that I ever have. I did a little bit of a Scripture search on my computer in my Word documents. It'll pull up every time I use the Scripture reference. I know that I've quoted a portion of this. Many, many, many times in ministry, but it, there wasn't a sermon that came up that, yeah, you preach this on this date. So, looking at the Apostle Paul, here's what, and maybe I can learn something from Paul. In most of the letters that Paul wrote, and I didn't look at it closely enough to say it all, but I can say Romans is built like this, and for sure Ephesians is built like this, and Colossians is built much like this. The first bit of Paul's letters always dealt with doctrinal truth about Jesus and about what Jesus had done and about who we are because of what Jesus had done. And then immediately following that doctrinal stuff, he would move into the practical side of what that meant for us. And, and I give you, I give you a bunch of Ill- Ephesians divides right down the middle. The first three chapters are all about Jesus. And what he's done for us and who we are in him. The last three chapters is what we ought to be doing for him because of what he's done for us. You go all the way through Romans. All the way through Romans chapter 10. And, and, and all that is is doctrinal stuff. This is who you were. This is who Christ has made you. Um, this is how he accomplished what he did. This is how you become. This is how you come into faith in Christ. Romans chapter 10. Romans chapter 11 is kind of almost a parenthesis chapter where he talks about what God's plan for Israel is. And then you get to Romans chapter 12 and he says, I, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies or because of the mercies of God, 
um, that you present your body as a living sacrifice. So he moves into practical. And everything from chapter 12 forward is this is what you ought to do because of what Christ has done. So it occurred to me this week, I spent a whole lot of time talking to you about what you ought to do and what you ought not to do. But I hadn't spent near enough time telling you about what Christ has done and who you are because of what Christ has done and because you've placed your faith in him. And, and, and you know, I, I think Paul um, knew the importance of knowing who we are and what we have in Christ becoming the primary motivation for us doing what we do. Christ. Does that make sense? Paul, I think, understood the better you know who you are. Uh, let, me, let me rephrase that. The better you know who Christ is and what Christ has done and who you are because of what he has done, the more motivated you will be to live your life for his honor and his glory. So if Ephesians chapter 2 kind of illuminates for us how Ephesians chapter 1 came to be. Ephesians chapter 1 tells us who we are in Christ. Ephesians chapter 2 tells us how we became who we are in Ephesians chapter 1. There's a, there's a very vivid picture painted in this passage of Scripture of what our life looked like before Christ, B.C., and what our, what our life looked like after Christ came in, the term is A.D. Anno Domini, which means the year of our Lord, the year that he became Lord of our life, this is what occurred. So let's just kind of, I'm going to read, I'm going I'm to do a little different this morning in that I'm going to preach it one verse at a time until we get all the way down through verse 10. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1 says, And you, he's speaking to those saints, who had placed their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Go all the way back to chapter 1. You'll see that. And you hath he quickened who were dead in sins and trespasses. So Paul is speaking to believers. He is speaking to them in a past tense um, way. He says, you were dead in sins and trespasses. He's speaking to people who, who, who were lost in their sins, um, but who are now alive in Christ. But I want you to do something with me for just a second. In the King James Version, when you see words that have been placed in, uh, that have been italicized, in that verse 1, and you hath he quickened, those verses that are, those words that are italicized in the King James Version of the Bible were not part of the ori original manuscripts that were translated. They were inserted into the text by the translators to make the verse a little bit easier for us to read. So, and, and you can do this anywhere you want to in Scripture. Anywhere you see those italicized words, just know that was not part of the original language and you can read past them. Uh, you can ignore them for a second just to make sure they didn't change the meaning of the text and, and they didn't. But, it's, but Paul literally said to them, and you who were dead in sins and trespasses. So this is the first part of our B.C. life. We were dead in sin. In fact, the, the plural is there. We were dead in sins and trespasses. There are two, there are two different words given there, but both of them mean uh, to miss the mark. Both of them mean to fall short. Both of them mean to not measure up. We were dead in our sins and trespasses. Now, we're not dead. 
We're not dead physically. We can still do a lot of things. We can walk and talk and do all kinds of things, but we're dead spiritually. We're dead in relationship to our having any kind of communion with God. We're dead um, spiritually in that we did not know God and could not know God in that dead place in our lives. Now, I don't want to get bogged down right here, but when you talk about being dead in sins, uh, can a physically dead man do anything whatsoever to bring himself back alive without any assistance from anybody else? The answer to that is no. Can a physically dead man bring himself back to life without any assistance from anybody else? Now, I, I will tell you something. I believe a will to live uh, may be important for our lives, um, but if you dead, a will to live ain't going to be enough to resurrect you from the dead, all right? And I'm stressing this a little bit because I want you to understand before you came to the Lord Jesus Christ, you were spiritually dead. You had no life in you and you had no way to bring any life to you. You're dead. You exist outside of a relationship with God. You do not know Him and you cannot know Him on your own because you're dead spiritually. Ephesians chapter 2 continues speaking of that time when they were dead in their sins and trespasses wherein in time past you walked according to the course of this world according to the prince of the power of the air the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience among whom also among whom also we all had our conversation in times past in the lust of our flesh fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind stop right there for a second this is the impact of being um, what the psalmist said. I was born in sin and shapened in iniquity. I was born dead. I was born with a spiritually dead nature. I was shapen in iniquity. We are sinners in our birth and we are sinners in our, in our practice. That's who we are. Dead in sins and trespasses. And Paul said that we are dead men walking. And if you follow what he said, he said that our whole life was dedicated to rebellion against God. Our whole life was dedicated to walking contrary to the ways of God. Now this is our B.C. life. Uh, walking with the world. He said in times past you walked just like the world is walking right now. You walked in obedience to the devil. That's the prince of the power of the air. Um, that's the one that's now working uh, in the children of disobedience, those that are still not saved. You walked with the world in obedience only to the devil and to your own flesh. We were dedicated to rebellion against God. Now, we didn't just do that. We enjoyed that. And even when we felt a tinge of guilt or a tinge of shame, and we set our heart and our mind to try to do better, rebellion was our default. Uh, we would do better for a little while, and then we would default back to our sinful nature and position. Does that, uh, you understand what I'm saying to you? Now, you might say, preacher, I wasn't all that bad. Yeah, you were. Your list didn't have to look like mine for you to be bad. In everybody that's not in Jesus is dead in sin. Everybody that's not, uh, that's, that's not alive in Jesus is dedicated to rebellion against God. You're walking the way the world walks. You're walking in disobedience to God. You're walking 
uh, in obedience to your own flesh. Now, there may be various degrees of that, but I want you to understand that before you met Jesus, you just like I was. You were a rotten, wretched, filthy sinner. All of us. I'm afraid some modern-day theology wants to take that away. And, and, and you hear people say stuff like, all, all people are basically good. No, that ain't what the Bible says. The Bible says just the opposite, that all people are basically bad, that there's none that's good, not one, that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, that there is none righteous, and that there, there are none who seek after God. Dead in sins, dedicated to rebellion, enjoying that rebellion. And I understand, I, I, you know, hear, I hear people say all the time, we're all children of God. No, we're not. We may all be a creation of God, but we're not all children of God. The Bible says that we're made children of God by faith in Jesus Christ. You may be part of the human contingency on earth, but you're not the heavenly contingency on earth without Christ. We were wretches. Another hymn. Would he devote that sacred head for such a worm as I? So let me tell you something about our, our and, and this is what it looks like, and to various degrees, and I don't care what degree you hang on me, I will tell you like the Apostle Paul told Timothy. I'm the chiefest of sinners. I'm not proud of that. But the more I have come to see Christ, the more wretched I know that I am without Him. A worm. Self-centered. Sinful. Often shameless in my sin. Before Christ. And then the last part of that verse. He said we were by nature. The very essence of who we are. We were by nature the children of wrath. Even as others. Even as the world that doesn't yet know him. We were by nature. Children of wrath. We were dead in our sins. We were dedicated to our rebellion. And we were destined for God's wrath. I don't hear much preaching about hell anymore. Even for me. And that's to my shame. But I want to tell you this morning, if you're here and you do not know Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, if you're still living in the B.C. era, you don't deserve anything but the wrath of God. There are no scales in heaven. Uh, well, if there are scales in heaven, it ain't going to be your good works against your bad works. It's going to be you and Jesus. And you ain't going to measure up. See, Jesus is standing in the scale with me. The Bible says my righteousness is his righteousness placed on me. But we deserve the wrath of God. We are by our very nature before we met Christ. 
destined for wrath. We deserve nothing less than the justified damnation of a three times holy God. One time Isaiah, and Isaiah, in fact, this is the second sermon I ever preached. I can't remember the first one. I was too nervous on it. And then y'all asked me to come back Sunday night and preach, and I didn't have a message ready. <laughs> so I preached the message on that first Sunday in October, or second Sunday of October and. 1995, I went to Walmart parking lot and studied the passage of Scripture that I answered the call to preach from. It's a, it's a vision that Isaiah had of God high and lifted up and His glory filling the temple and the angels around Him crying, Holy, holy, holy uh, is the Lord of hosts. Uh, the whole earth is full of His glory. And you know what the next thing Isaiah did? He hit his face. He fell down on his face before that holy God and said, Woe is me. I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell among a people of unclean lips. For mine eyes have seen the Lord. And I'm here to tell you, I, I don't believe Isaiah was an exceedingly wicked man, but he saw an exceedingly holy God. And I want you to understand that before you come to the Lord Jesus Christ in faith, you don't deserve, I don't deserve anything less than God's damnation on our life. Because we were dead in sins, dedicated to rebellion. We deserved His wrath. And listen to me very clearly. The man without Jesus is hell bound. The woman without Jesus is hell bound. It doesn't matter how religious they might appear. It doesn't matter how moral they might appear. It doesn't matter how philanthropic they might appear. They without Christ are hell bound. Ted Turner made a statement years ago about, the, about what he had given and what he had done and how worthy he was of uh, of an eternal glory and an inheritance. And I'm here to tell you, it don't, I don't care what you have done. When you lay it upside, the holiness of God, when you lay it upside, the life of Christ, it is filthy rags in God's eyes. Every man without Jesus is bound for the wrath of God. There is nothing in us that merits God's mercy. And we, in spite of what you might think, you didn't go looking for him. He came looking for you. He came looking for me. Listen, I run from him. I resisted him. I was dedicated to my rebellion. I can't tell you how many times I white-knuckled a pew when I knew he was calling my name. I ran as hard as I could run from him until I couldn't run anymore. It wasn't my pursuit of him that brought me to Christ. It was his pursuit of me. That's who we were. According to those first three verses, that's who we were before we came to Christ. Now, you can say a whole lot more about all three of those things. But suffice it to say, that's a wretched man. That's a wicked man. That's a man who deserves nothing less than the judgment of God on his life. And then you get to verse 4, which is probably my, one of my favorite verses in this whole section of Scripture because it begins with, but God. <laughs> Man, I love that, don't you? But God. There's another verse in Romans that says, for the wages of sin is death. That's what we deserve. That's what we've earned. That's what that if we got what we deserve, we would get eternal death. We would get eternal separation from God. But the gift of God is eternal life 
through Jesus Christ our Lord. Hallelujah. I love that. But God, who is rich in mercy for his great love wherewith he loved us. Now, um, I, I'm not, I don't know how to do all that Greek stuff. I don't know. I can look up words in the Strong's Concordance. But I read some interesting stuff this week. Um, and, and, and you start losing me when you start talking about past tense, present tense, passive, aortist, and all that kind of stuff. I've been out of school too long for all that. But when I was, I, I, you can go to blueletterbible.com and you can, you can ask these, um, you can just click on an interlinear concordance and it'll lay all of these verses out in the original language and give you the tense of those verses and the words. What's the verb? What's the adjective? What's the noun? And it, what was interesting to me in this, in this passage, in the whole passage, in fact, from verse 1 to verse 7 in the original language is one continual sentence without any punctuation. It's just one long sentence and verse 4 packed right there in the middle of it the main subject of this whole passage of scripture isn't the man who is dead in his sins and trespasses and it isn't the man who is alive in Christ the main subject of this whole passage of scripture is but God who is rich in mercy and because of the great love wherewith he loved us that's the subject, and that's the action. Um, that, that's what made God. That's the adjective to, to describe him, to take the action that he took on our behalf. God's the subject, not us. But God, who is rich in mercy. Everything about this passage points us to what he has done for us. Rich in mercy, full of great love. For who? For rotten sinners, dead in sin. Dedicated to rebellion, deserving wrath, but God, rich in mercy and full of love, sent his son to die for our sin. God extended his love towards Romans 5, 8, commendeth is the King James word. But God commendeth his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. But God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish. We deserve that wrath. Should not perish but have everlasting life. Ephesians chapter 2 Verse 5 begins that A.D. part of our life. Even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together with Christ. <laughs> and I read this parenthesis and I thought, the Apostle Paul's about to bust wide open. Because he's, he's trying to take them from point A to C, but, but he, can't, he can't get to see without hitting it a little bit in the middle. I do that in preaching sometimes. I can't wait to tell you what I want to tell you. He's going to expand on this in a minute. But, but listen to what he says first. You were dead in your sins and trespasses. You were before Christ, dead in sin, dedicated to rebellion, deserving of wrath. But even then, God quickened us. He made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you're saved and hath raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ 
Jesus. Even when we were dead, God was doing work for us. God was doing work on our behalf in and through the Lord Jesus Christ. Three things that he said in those, in those two verses that he did for us. He resurrected us to life. The same spirit that raised Jesus' body from the grave rose our dead spirit from the grave. Now, we weren't dead physically yet. We're dead spiritually. We're dying physically. We're dead spiritually, and that same spirit that brought Jesus' dead body from the grave brought our dead spirit to life. Um, John chapter... Three, there was a dialogue that Jesus had with a Pharisee by the name of Nicodemus, who I believe God was working in his life and calling Nicodemus to Christ. That's proved later on when he became one that helped take care of the body of Jesus. He came to Jesus by night. He didn't want the others to see what he was doing. He didn't even have to ask Jesus a question. Um, Jesus already knew what was on his heart, and what Jesus told Nicodemus is, is that you must be born again. Unless you have been born again, you cannot see the kingdom. Now, Nicodemus is a religious man. He's a Pharisee. He's doing all he can do to keep the law. He's doing all he could to walk in the ways of God. But Jesus knew exactly what he needed. Jesus knew Nicodemus is dead in his sins. Jesus knew that it didn't matter how hard Nicodemus tried, he was always going to fall short of being able to keep the law. Uh, Jesus knew that Nicodemus was destined for the wrath of God just as surely as every other man apart from, apart from a relationship with him was. And what he said is, Nicodemus, you ain't getting there unless you've been born again. So what Jesus did on the cross for us is gave us the ability to be born again. Nicodemus said, now what do I have to do to be born again? I've got to go back in my mom's womb. That ain't going to be easy for her. <laughs> Jesus said, no, I'm speaking to you about spiritual things. I'm speaking to you about your spiritual life, not your physical life. And then he talked about the wind. Blows wherever. You see where it, you see where it goes, you see where it came from, but you don't know what created that wind. You see the effects of it. He said, so it is everyone that is born of the Spirit. This is the new birth. This is when that the Spirit of God resurrects spiritual life in us. The wind of God blew the breath of life into us. And I can tell you, I know when that happened. I know when that happened in my life. I knew for the first time ever that I had a relationship with God that I wasn't running from him anymore, that I wasn't afraid of him anymore, not in the sense of being terrified, because his love had embraced me in the Lord Jesus Christ, and I was resurrected to life. Not only were we resurrected to life, but Paul said we were raised up together with him. Now, the Bible says a lot about the resurrection power of the Lord Jesus Christ and that power being imparted to those that have trusted him. Uh, and, and when Jesus was raised from the dead in his resurrected body by the power of the Holy Spirit, would you agree with me that his body was different than it was? And that it was unique in a lot of ways that it was not in his pre-resurrection body. 
the only scars that he had, they didn't recognize him at first because he'd been glorified. And there's a lot of things we can say about Jesus' glorified body. Here's, what, here's all I want you to remember. When Jesus was raised by the Spirit of God from the dead, he got a new body. It was different than his first body. It was a glorified body. It was a body that would never die again. And I want to tell you something. When you were born again by the Spirit of God, you were raised up with a new power that you didn't ever have before. You are a new creature, created new in the Lord Jesus Christ, raised up with power that you never had when you walked in that B.C. life. You're no longer walking now as the enemy of God, but you're walking as an ambassador of the Lord Jesus Christ. And when I talk about being raised in power, I mean this. He's given us power over sin. He didn't just conquer sin's penalty for us. He conquered its power. We don't have to walk uh, in the lust of the flesh anymore. We don't have to obey the devil anymore. Romans chapter 6 says that we ought to reckon ourselves dead indeed unto sin, but alive unto God through the Lord Jesus Christ. For sin no longer has dominion over us. Hallelujah. I'm going to tell you something. I, before Christ, I tried a hundred times to turn over a new leaf, to do different. And every time the wind blew a different direction, I flipped right back. But that changed when I was born again. That changed when he gave me a new nature. That gave me, the Bible says, 1 Peter said, that he has given us everything that we need according to, as his divine power hath given to us everything um, that we need that pertains to life and godliness. We can look like Jesus. We can act like Jesus. We can talk like Jesus. We can be ambassadors of Jesus in the world. We can overcome sin. We can be a witness of his saving grace. We can bring him honor and we can bring him glory because we've been raised up with the same power that brought him forth from the grave. That's what we're capable of. Chapter 4, 5, and 6 tells us what that looks like. But how many of you know sometimes we got, we got powers and abilities that we don't never exercise? Sometimes I think it's because we don't know we got them. Ephesians chapter 2 says if you've been born again, you've also been raised with power. And then the last thing he says is that he hath raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Now here's what I believe that means. Is that we are already reigning with Christ. Where's Jesus at right now? Bible says he's sitting at the right hand of the Father. That's a place of authority. The Bible tells us that God has given to him all authority. And Jesus is going to do everything that the Father's given him to do. And he's going to subject everything and put it under his feet. That's why his name is the name above every name. That one day every knee in heaven and earth, under the earth, all over the earth is going to give him glory. Or going to honor him to the glory of God the Father. Jesus is at the right hand of the Father. He has power. He's ruling and reigning even now. And what the Bible says is that we are sitting with him. Now, I know I'm not there physically. You're not there physically. But positionally and spiritually, we are already sitting in a place of authority. Get your mind wrapped around that for a minute, all right? You are children of God. You are the son of God. You are the daughter of God. You are heirs and joint heirs 
with the Lord Jesus Christ. You have the Holy Spirit living inside of you. You are the bride of Christ. You are the body of Christ. You are a kingdom of priests according to the scriptures. We are already reigning with Christ. In the Lord Jesus Christ, we are exalted in the eyes of God. And we have honor and we have privilege um, that comes from being kingdom citizens. What does that look like? I can make you a long list, but let me just give you a few things. What does it mean to be reigning with Christ? First, it means that you got access to God. <laughs> That's a big deal. The Bible says that we can come boldly before a throne of grace. We can, listen to me, and I don't mean that we got to be proud and arrogant, and, but, but the Bible says I can come to the Father in heaven as my daddy. The king sits upon his throne, and I can run to him as his child. Some of y'all are too young to remember this, and you might not even know. Uh, and, and, and it came right there at the beginning of my life. But there was just enough of it that I was able to catch on to it. When John F. Kennedy, I think, was one of the uh, most beloved presidents that we've ever had. Just because of the way he connected with people on that relational level. Some of you older people recognize that. But I remember seeing, uh, many, many years ago, one of the most endearing pictures of John F. Kennedy was his little boy playing under the Oval Office desk. Look it up. Because here is, here is, in the world's view, the most powerful man on earth, the President of the United States of America. At the desk that represents that power, with a little boy playing at his feet, sitting with his daddy. Can I tell you, positionally and spiritually, we are sitting at the Father's feet as His children. We are reigning with Christ. We have access to His throne. The Bible says that we have the keys to His kingdom. That we can loose things on earth that will be loose in heaven. That we can bind things on earth that will be bound in heaven. He has given to us the keys of the kingdom and that we can take the message of the gospel to a dead world that is dedicated to rebellion and that deserves the wrath of God. That we can take to them the good news of the gospel which is the key to the kingdom and we can share that good news with them and set them free from that life and they can have what we have in the Lord Jesus Christ. We're his ambassadors. We invite them to come live where we're living in Christ. We have treasures in heaven. We can lay up treasures in heaven while we're living on earth because that's our home. We have power on earth to do everything that God's called us to do. Ephesians chapter 2, 7 says that in the ages to come, he might show the exceeding riches of His grace in His kindness toward us through Christ Jesus. Let me tell you what that verse means. Let me tell you what it says to me. God did what He did through Christ in order to eternally showcase his exceeding rich grace toward us. Let me say it a different way. See if it makes more sense to you. God did what he did. Let me say it like this. 
what God did for our good, He did primarily for His own glory. Now see, when I say that, that kind of kind of smacks us a little bit. Wait a minute, because we don't, you know, we as humans, we don't do things for our own glory. And we don't we don't quite wrap our mind around it. But you got to understand something. There ain't but one entity in the whole universe that's worthy of worship, and that's God Almighty. Nothing else would exist outside of Him. It is He who hath made us, and not we ourselves. He's worthy of glory. God did what He did for our good for His own glory, so that in eternity, in the ages to come, in eternity, we will look at Him and recognize that we're nothing but trophies of His grace. We'll glorify Him for what He has done for us, which is what we were created to do anyway. When God set Adam and Eve in the garden, it was so that it might multiply His glory in the earth uh, and exercise dominion, and that bring Him glory. We, the, the catechism says um, that the chief and highest end of man is that we might uh, glorify God and enjoy Him forever. God did what He did in the Lord Jesus Christ for His own glory. We don't need to wrestle with that. He is the only one that is worthy. He is the only one that is self-sufficient. And all of creation is already giving Him glory. The heavens declare the glory of God and the earth showcases His handiwork. And can I tell you something else? Every, every born again child of God declares the glory of God and showcases His handiwork in our lives. Without Him, we would not even exist. Ephesians chapter 2, 8. This is the passage that I've quoted so often. I'm not going to be a long time right here. If you ain't never memorized the passage of Scripture before, memorize this. Tried to get into the ICU unit one time in St. Vincent's when I found out an old family friend was in there. They wanted me to go get an ID. I said, what do I have to do to get that? We well, got to go across town to another hospital, fill out a form, bring back a letter from on church letterhead. And I'm like, listen, my friend's in ICU. Just had open heart surgery. I just want to go in and pray with him. His family asked me. Yeah, but we don't know that. You're not on the list. They went through all that, and I'm like, come on, man. Make an exception. <laughs> the guy went in twice and came back with a no answer. The third time he went in, he came back out, and he just stood in the door. He said, Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. I said, what? He said, Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. I said, for by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. Not of works, lest any man should boast. He said, come on, you got to be a preacher. <laughs> and our whole business was because people go into the hospital impersonating preachers so they can get into the room. And I'm like, that's a pretty good test. But it ought not to be just preachers that can pass it. Because the whole substance of your salvation 
is found in that one verse, which is the bridge between who you were and who you are. You are saved by grace through faith. Not anything that you did. Not anything that you can boast about. It's the gift of God. Amazing grace. You know, I've been in a lot of places that were not necessarily spiritual, religious events. Went to Alabama Charlie Daniels concert one time. I'm glad Charlie Daniels got things right before he went home to be with the Lord. But, and he was right then. He was 80-something years old, acting like a youngin' on the stage. But, you know, not all the songs that they sang that night were spiritual songs. Not everybody in that Coliseum was a child of God. There's a lot of people there that were still in a B.C. part of their life. You could tell it. They was paying $12 for a beer. And some of them was rather intoxicated already. But when the first notes of amazing grace began to come from that stage from Alabama and Charlie Daniels, there was a hush. Tears filled people's eyes. Now I can tell you, it, it filled my eyes. I mean, I'd been entertained. I had been entertained. I had a good time listening to Charlie Daniels in Alabama. I've been singing my heart out. I've been singing them Alabama love songs with my wife sitting next to me. But when the first strains of Amazing Grace hit that place, and this happens everywhere you go, there's a sacred stillness that descends. And for Christians, I think it's a matter of us seeing the B.C. and the A.D. It's, it's a matter of gratitude for us that God has given us the most incredible gift that we have ever been given in the Lord Jesus. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was blind. Lost, found, blind, see. Saved, rich. But what about the unsaved part of that audience? I think it's the sound of hope. Because we identify, even in our BC life, with I ain't much good. I fall short. I fail. Is there hope for wretches? Sure there is. His name is Jesus. Now, 
there's a lot of debate. I'm, 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 I'm doing, but let me just share with you this. There's a lot of debate in verse 8. It's a theological thing. Between, about what the gift is. Is the gift grace or is the gift faith? What's the gift? You're saved by grace through faith. And that, what? That, that, that. Not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. Well, here's my take on it for what it's worth. It's both. In fact, let me just say a little bit different. It's salvation. It's salvation. That's the gift. That was wrought by grace through faith. Salvation is the gift of God. The gift has to be received. A gift is just a gift until it's received. Amen? Salvation is a gift. We receive it. How do we receive it? We receive it by faith. No, that's, some, some will say, no, that's you doing the work. No, that's me responding to the grace and love of God that's been extended to me. I ain't doing nothing but cashing the check that he wrote. I'm taking it to the bank. It ain't a work that I did. He did the work. He gave me the gift. I'm just receiving it by placing my faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. I don't have anything to boast about in verse 9. Nor does any other believer in this house this morning. It don't matter how many messages I've preached since then. It don't matter how many good deeds I've done before or after I came to Christ. It is by His grace that I am saved. Verse 10 says, for we are His workmanship. Can I tell you that means from beginning to end. <laughs> from, the, from the new birth... To the new body. From, from the transition from B.C. to A.D. To the transition to, to the glory that I'm going to see and be revealed one day. It's all Him. We are His workmanship. Created in Christ Jesus and two good works which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. It's, it's all His work. It's all His work for us. It's all His work in us. It's all His work through us. I've never been able to lead anybody to Jesus had I not been led to Jesus first. It's all His work. Let me, can I read to you one last passage of Scripture? I know, I know, I know, I know. I'm long-winded all the time. Even when I try to be short-winded, I'm long-winded. Just read this with me. John chapter 5. Verily, verily, that means truly, truly, I say unto you. This is Jesus, written in red. He that heareth my word and believeth on him that sent me hath everlasting life and shall not come into condemnation, but is passed from death into life. Verse 25. Verily, verily, truly, truly, I say unto you, the hour is coming and now is. Jesus said we're in this moment. The whole world's been waiting on it, but now we're in it. The hour is coming and now is here. When the dead shall hear the voice of the Son of God, and they that hear shall live. Now, I read this passage for a purpose. I have some good friends who believe that you can't do anything until God causes you to be born again by His Spirit. Then you can respond. And, 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 and it's always about a man that's dead in his sins. A man that's dead in his sins can't hear the voice of God. What Jesus said is there's an hour coming and that now is when the dead shall hear the voice of the Son of God and they that hear shall live. That's the voice 
calling you to salvation. That's the voice calling you to Christ. Now, I would agree that the men that the men that are laying out in our graveyard can't hear my voice, but I don't have a resurrection power voice. He's got a resurrection power voice. And when he calls to the dead, uh, listen, let me keep reading. I can preach this one to you. For as the Father hath life in himself, so hath he given to the Son to have life in himself. And have given him authority to execute judgment also because he's the son of man. And, and, then, and then he's like, in case you've got problems with this, in case you're wondering how God can speak life into somebody that's spiritually dead, marvel not at this, he said, for the hour is coming. It ain't here yet. But the hour is coming in the which all that are in the graves shall hear his voice. And shall come forth, they that have done good unto the resurrection of life, and they that have done evil unto the resurrection of damnation. So you got an opportunity to hear the voice of God that calls you to spiritual life this morning. He can bring the dead to life. He can raise you up in power. He can sit you in places of authority in Christ Jesus if you believe what he said if you hear it and believe it, you can have it. Now, there's coming a day that every, every body that's ever been buried across the face of this earth is going to hear that same voice call them forth to stand before him in judgment. But that's not going to end well for everybody. Somebody said it like this, if you've been born twice, you die once. If you've been born once, you die twice. Have you been born again? The bridge between B.C. and A.D. ain't nothing but the amazing grace of God. And all you've got to do to cross that bridge is come to Jesus. His voice. Let's stand as our musicians come. I thank you for the. feel so that I can't get it all poured out. So incredibly thankful for this passage of scripture. It tells me who I was. It tells me who I am. And reveals to me how I got there. And there may be somebody here this morning that's lost. And there's nothing in this world I'd rather see. Than for them to walk across that bridge. They, they don't have to measure up. They ain't got to have it all right. They ain't got to clean up anything or do anything. They just got to trust you. That you'll give to them what you gave to us. Because of your rich mercy. And your great love. All who come to Jesus will be saved. So if there's one here.
I'll meet them up front. I'll meet them at the altar. I'll, I'll share how to receive that gift. But God, call them right now, I pray. Call them by your Spirit. May the wind of the Holy Spirit blow. All it takes is one step of faith.